We made this. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Red and Buried Podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Frankie. And we are here today with lovely author Lexi Elliott, whose new book Bright and Deadly Things is out next month, I believe. That is correct in uh, February. Thank God. (laughs) Lexi, thank you so much for joining us. It's so nice to see you. I'm delighted to be on. Thank you for having me been a real pleasure. Sarah has kind of teased already. We've both read the new book and we both really enjoyed it. That is lovely yes. to hear. <laughs> yeah. Would have been so awkward if we hadn't. I was imagine. thinking <laughs> just that. Yeah, we could have gone right. Um, should we just leave it here? You know, go get a <laughs> Yeah. <one."> yeah. <laughs> We've just been lots of like, so you wrote a book. That's great. <laughs> like, well done. <laughs> well done. Uh, lots of words. That's great. So before we get into talking more about your brilliant new book, uh, I've got done a little bit of a bio about you. And uh, as is tradition, I've taken things purely off the internet. Hopefully it's all accurate, but you can tell me if I've gotten anything horribly wrong afterwards, if that's okay. Right. So Lexi Elliott has been writing for as long as she can remember, but she began to focus on it more seriously after losing her banking job in 2009 due to the global financial crisis. After some success in a short story competition, Lexi began planning a novel. The result was The French Girl, which was published in February 2018 and was followed by The Missing Years in 2019 and How to Kill Your Best Friend in 2021. I'm hoping that's like a useful toolkit that I can use um, in case Sarah gets out of line. (laughs) It's not exactly a how-to manual. I mean, I think for kind of reasons of legal liability, I kind of... (laughs) Yeah, very good. Very good. Very safe. Well done. Uh, Her fourth novel, Bright and Deadly Things, is out in February. Following the death of her husband, Emily is happy to find herself surrounded by friends and fellow Oxford peers at the rustic chalet de Anglais in the French Alps. With no electricity, running water or access by car, surely this trip will offer her the time and space she needs to heal. But before she makes it to the airport, Emily interrupts a break-in at her home and on the first night at the chalet, she discovers an inappropriate sexual liaison between an undergrad and a colleague. When the student suddenly disappears and Emily sees her deceased husband's number in her call history, she realises she had better figure out who she can trust. Or the next disappearance may be her own. Sounds very exciting. As well as that, Lexi grew up in Scotland at the foot of the Highlands. She graduated from Oxford University, where she obtained a doctorate in theoretical physics, which means you are infinitely smarter than both Sarah and I combined. Uh, yes. A keen sportswoman. <laughs> she works in fund management in London, where she lives with her husband and two sons. The rest of her time is spent writing or thinking about writing, which is often the thought that counts, and juggling family life and sport. She's also very kind, generous with her time and in either in need of an early night or a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean the early night in a glass of wine is is getting slightly better now that the boys are older. You know, I like. Oh, that's good. I occasionally, feel like staying up late. Whoa, with a glass of wine, like, obviously with a glass. Of, wine. of course. <laughs> <laughs> How old are your sons? They're sixteen and fourteen now. Um, so yeah. Oh my god, that sounds awful. <laughs> well, actually, you know, the older one is definitely a teenager, but he's quite a nice teenager, and Aww, he seems to have good. his head screwed on. And the younger one really, really is a teenager. Yeah, I mean, the number says it, but it doesn't behave like one. So we're hoping it never happens. <laughs> Cling to Aww. that for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, so obviously, you have this is your fourth book now, and it feels like that you've been on a real journey with your writing. Would you say that's fair? I mean, I think 
you know, the first book is, is like, oh my God, it's amazing. I'm getting published. This is fantastic. And then the second book is like, oh God, I have to write to a deadline. Ah, never had to do that before. I mean, it took so many years to write The French Girl. So yeah, The Missing Years was a bit like deer in headlights. And then, you know, How to Call Your Best Friend was a, a new chapter again. And I, I wouldn't like to say that I feel like I know how to do it because I get paranoid and anxious and the 20,000 word mark I always 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 just kind of freak out and think that the whole thing's terrible and my agent has to walk me back from the edge and stop me from dumping oh. the entire project but I have also begun to think well maybe that's just my process <laughs> and I won't get anxious about it. but yeah it's it's always super 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 exciting to have a, a book out because it's just the culmination of such a lot of hard work and it feels like some kind of minor miracle when you finally hold it in your hands and think, wow, we actually, we got there. We got to the end of this. And and then you hope that <laughs> lots of people like it. Um, I try not to go down the rabbit hole of reading too many reviews or anything. I just read anything that my my agent says is really great and I ought to read. But that's that's me. And I, I think that you can, um, you can really go to some dark places if you focus too much on... Uh, on people's responses because let's face it none of us are well there can only be one I don't know Len Dayton and James Besson who sells and sells and sells and sells and um you know there's always going to be someone who's doing better than you so let's not get into that comparison let's just enjoy the fact that there's a book out there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very impressed that you don't clearly have the masochistic streak that I do because I wouldn't be able to resist reading everything and then yeah would beat myself up forever over it I think mm. it it happened to me on the first book with a couple and you know you'd you'd read you know 19 fantastic reviews and then there'd be run, one review that said something in it that just caught at you and I, yeah. I just can't do this I, I'm too busy I've got too much else in my life to allow that to just squirrel away in my mind I, I just don't need it so I, I try and take myself away from it very sensible very smart it was interesting I'd never thought about it how the first book obviously you don't have the deadlines right because it's your first one did you prefer writing that one or is it nicer now that you've kind of got into a groove and you you know what to expect I suppose um I think I think it's better now. I mean, on that first one, you, you I just didn't know if it was ever going to see the light of day. And so it's yeah. such a exercise in faith to just keep going. And I had very young children and it took such a long time. Mm. Whereas now, I, you know, I, I think I've begun to really enjoy the second draft in a way that I never thought I would, because I feel like you can really shift the emphasis and change the direction and come out with something that's much much better during that second draft process and I I write a pretty clean first draft you could publish it and nobody's going to say oh that person doesn't know how to I don't know punctuate or or use spelling it's pretty clean but in terms of just being really strict with yourself about everything in there serving the plot and moving it forward and the themes that you want to explore you can do that much better in the second draft and making sure that you're you're really honing the structure properly to do what you want it to do and there's a craft in that in itself so I feel like the first draft is like creativity 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 and then the second draft is still it can still be very creative but in a very specific targeted precise way yeah would you say that that's what you enjoy most about the writing process that's one of the questions we always ask is what do you enjoy most about it and what do you enjoy least about it I'm going to answer that 
backwards. Um, what okay. I enjoy least is probably two things. One is it's it's very isolating. You know, it's a very mm-hmm. solitary profession. And there's no way around that. And I don't think I noticed that quite so much when I wasn't writing full time, when I still had a three day a week city job. Whereas now I'm very aware that it's it's solitary and I have to think really hard to make sure that I've got, you know, points in my week where I'm having coffee with someone, I'm having some interaction with, you know, grown-ups and things. <laughs> so, yeah, it, I find that is is a hard thing. And if I were to have like an office party, it's basically like me standing in my kitchen by myself with a glass of wine. <laughs> uh, I couldn't do that any day of the week if I want really (laughs) but uh, then the other thing that I find difficult is um, social media I mean not this kind of thing I love this kind of thing because it's it's people and it's interaction and so on and so forth but I'm not I'm not a child of the millennium generation I didn't grow up with Instagram on my phone I didn't grow up with a mobile phone you know so all of those kind of things um I don't find particularly easy and I'd really rather just be writing than pay attention to anything like that I always think it's terribly unfair to kind of expect authors and things like that to be good at everything around it as well it feels like now you have to be a complete package it's actually not just I think in any kind of creative medium you have to if you're a singer, you don't have, you can't just be a singer. You also have to be a TikTok sensation and you've got to be all of these things yeah. at the same time. But that's not what you, that's not what you got into this to do. You got into it to write, as you say. So I think it's, it's quite unfair in a lot of ways. It's got to be that way. It, it is. And I think if you are, you know, well-known enough or, or good enough or maybe well-known and because that's the point um you don't have to do these things and some people have crafted mm-hmm. um, a bit of mystique around themselves by not doing that. But no publishing house is going to be happy with a new author. I'm just very mysterious. So yes, you do do have to at the very least try. And um, Mm. I try and get as much help as possible, really just rely on people who actually are of that generation and, you know, talk in a language that I don't necessarily understand. But, you know, that's really helpful. (laughs) Lol and ruffle and all that kind of thing. And then what do I like most? Again, two things. I like, like every once in a while you you write a sentence and it just nails what you're trying to say or it does it in a particularly lyrical way that speaks to you and it feels almost like you've uncovered the sentence rather than you've written it and get a real kick out of that and I think there's some kind of special alchemy when that happens it's it's really rewarding and then the other thing that I really really enjoy is when my characters start going off and doing their own thing um, and really kind of switching the story and you think okay well you know they're in my head they're they always were kind of real life breathing you know thinking people who will have their own focuses and ambitions and drivers but when it starts kind of moving the story in unexpected directions that's really exciting to me because then I think it's very authentic it's I want to write character driven psychological thrillers and so the the authenticity of the character arc is really important to me. And I think once the characters are doing that, when you feel like, okay, but they're clearly they're not willing to say that and they're going off over here, that's brilliant. When you hit one of those sentences that you said, like, it's really exciting, like, nailed that, do you go off and, like, tell your kids or tell your husband? <laughs> and you're just sitting there, like, Gather around, family. <laughs> Look at my genius. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't really. <laughs> um, oh, maybe, you should. I probably should. I mean, I, I 
occasionally, I suppose I might say at the end of the day, oh, no, I had a really good day today. It went, it went really well. But really sure they would totally understand if I tried to say that. Because <laughs> I do it with my husband. If I think of, if I tell a very funny joke during the day, you better believe me. I'm like, you better believe how funny I was earlier. And he's like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's thoughtful. a patient man. <laughs> for, for jokes, I would absolutely go and tell them. <laughs> We're talking now specifically about the new book, as I said, which Sarah by thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed, Bright and Deadly Things. So now reading about your bio as well and your journey through uh, the higher education uh, field, shall we say, uh, particularly at Oxford, how much did you kind of draw on your personal experience through your studies of theoretical physics at Oxford? Because Emily is is very much in that in that path herself, isn't she? Yeah, very much so. And I I did very much draw on that. And I wanted, I started from the point of view of um, kind of, oh, can I, can I write a thriller set in the world of academia? But, you know, the campus thriller has sort of been done to death. You know, there's so many of them and I wanted to do something a little different. And that's when I thought of the Chalet des Anglais, which, which actually exists. And I was invited when I was doing my PhD to go to Chalet des Anglais um, in the French Alps for a, a, a kind of academic retreat, a reading party, and had an absolutely fabulous time. Nobody died. Oh. Plenty of red wine, um, <laughs> lots of games of something called Ibble Dibble, where you, yeah, it, if you don't know it, look it up. Anyway, um, <laughs> we, we, had a, we had a lot of fun and a lot of walking and, you know, not so much reading as I should have been doing, but anyway, um, it was a great week. But the, the chalet itself is right where I put it in the novel. Um, the, the layout of the chalet is not exactly the same, and that's partly because it didn't serve the story to have it be exactly as it is, and partly because, you know, it was, I think it was the year 2000, right? I mean, my memories are not perfect, so I wouldn't recreate it perfectly if I tried, and I couldn't even go and see it to research it because of the pandemic. But, uh, you know, it, it's it's meant to be, something that captures at the very least the atmosphere and the atmosphere of that place at night you know no running water no electricity was was very special and particular and I kind of I suppose I took it and gave it a more sinister bent for sure <laughs> I don't remember being particularly in in fear for my life from my my fellow reading party shall I That's good. but you know yeah. um <laughs> It came from that. And that experience, you know, the more I thought about it, it's a very unique one, even amongst people who have been to Oxford University. It's an invitation only trip. Um, There's only a few colleges that jointly own the uh, chalet together, have a joint trusteeship. So there's only three or four colleges, three, I think it is, who run reading parties there. So, you know, you have to be in the right college. You have to be invited. you You know, you have to be very lucky to get that invitation. Um, so it was quite a unique uh, experience for me. And then I remember thinking at the time that it was a unique experience because you put different stratas of Oxford life, you know, very elderly senior dons through to undergraduates all together in this confined living space. And that in itself is quite, and it, it, it's almost like, um, you know, doing a analysis of class but it, it's really kind of academic standing rather than class that you're looking at the, the, the different stratas bumping up into each other and that was I found that quite interesting as a starting point for it. 
Yeah, oh my God, you've just made me want to go to the French Alps, basically. It's fascinating. <laughs> to I commit love murder. A book. Well, yeah, why not? I love a book <laughs> that's set in like a slightly unique setting like that and one that mm. I've never been in as well. There's something really, I don't know, just really draws you in, doesn't it? Very much. So I was going to say along that topic, another question, or sort of along that topic, another question we always ask um, authors when we speak to them is, if you had to be a character from one of your books, who would you be and why? And I'm really interested to hear what you say, because I suspect it might not be Emily. She's had quite a sad time of it, hasn't she? Yeah, yeah, she um, she has. She's recently widowed as we, as we meet her at the start of the book, and she's clearly struggling with that and you know there's a certain amount of well obviously unresolved grief and and anxiety and I think she she is very much blowing in the wind at that point she doesn't quite know what her step next steps should be what she wants them to be aware you know that maybe were it not for her husband she wouldn't have still been at Oxford and and now that he's no longer present what does she want to do with her life and so yeah probably not going to choose her (laughs) (laughs) interesting question I think that I would maybe decide to either be Ailsa from the missing years because she she, well, she has a house in Scotland. Not bad. Nice. Yeah. Pretty yeah. Good, yeah. Quite like it. Has a, a you yeah. know, she has formed a really good, by the end of the novel, oh no, I can't give away things. Okay, so I'm just going to stop. <laughs> Elsa, Elsa in the, the Missing Years or Lara in um, The French Girl. Um, she, she was more like, not the main character. Um, she was the best friend of, yeah. of the main character. Very buxom, bright Swedish girl who, you know, had a lot of interest from the opposite sex. I mean, it, I think it would be That'd be fun. fun to be yeah. Well, you, you touched on that. We talked a bit about Emily and the grief um, that she's experiencing. And, and I, th- I felt that you wrote it in a really interesting and a very real way, which uh, I think also is a really nice and unique way to approach that because often... When a character is, you know, introduced as going through grief, it's often very much the person who died was the, you know, perfect marriage, perfect relationship. And it's, you know, this, and obviously she does, she's obviously going through grief and she misses him a lot. It's very sad, but she also acknowledges that their relationship wasn't perfect and she had, you know, difficulties within that. Um, how come you decided to approach it in that way? I think it felt, it felt very, as you say, real to me mm. to acknowledge that, things aren't perfect. I also think it was probably coloured a lot by um, having written it in a period of time where my mum my died in 2020 with Alzheimer's. Oh, I had a, a wonderful relationship with my mum, but, you know, by the time she died, it's not like I'd have a, had a decent conversation with her for the last, I don't know, five years before she died because she, mm. she wasn't able to hold a conversation and she wasn't the person that she had been and that relationship had become something quite different and I don't know if that sort of coloured it for me as well that being honest about like I wish I had my mum back but I wish I had the mum before the Alzheimer's for sure yeah Yeah. because it was very very difficult during that decline and I think sometimes when you're writing things you don't really know where they come from I think the first short story that I got some some quite good recognition for I thought I was writing about a university prank and it turned out that I was writing about the death of my grandfather but I didn't figure that out until I finished it and sort of put all those pieces together and go oh Right, I get it, and and I think there's a little bit of that that um you know what my mum my mum's death did color the way in which I approached 
the the parts that touch on grief. Would you say that writing's a form of therapy for you? Um, therapy. It's it's certainly a need in the same way that mm. I get really scratchy if I haven't done some exercise. I get scratchy if I haven't written. So is it therapy? Is it something that I need to have in my life? Whether you describe that as therapy or not, I'm not sure. But I do think that things that you struggle with or things that you have mulled over will come out and things that you are particularly interested in you'll find a way to weave into some of the the sub themes of the novel and it's part of the reason why I really really like the mystery genres thriller genres that you have a structure I view it as a kind of scaffolding and that's in place and that's going to help you move the plot along and keep the pacing and keep the the readers interested but you can hang other things on that scaffolding and you can investigate and look at those alongside and I think if the novel was just like well you know here's how we get from this happened to who'd done it at the end in a very mechanical process without any of those extra things built on the scaffolding it it wouldn't keep people's imagination and you wouldn't wouldn't think about it afterwards yeah do you have something in mind for your next book or is it too soon to even think about it (laughs) I do have something in mind I've written an outline so I just need to kind of go through that um with with my agent and publisher and and so forth and and see where we take it but what, what tends to happen is I get I come up with a more like a setting first, an atmosphere that really starts intriguing me and I keep coming back to it and then it sort of builds from there. Um, this one got quite complicated, so I ended up, I've done quite a detailed outline on it, um, more detailed than I normally do, because I just couldn't quite make it work with, in my head without doing that work, if you see what I mean. So yeah, I, yeah. I'm quite excited to write that one. I think I, I think it could um, you could come together really nicely, but um, I won't tell anybody anything about it until I know for sure that's what my next no. project will be. <laughs> that's okay. And without asking for specifics or details, is it inspired by... So- can you trace back where you've got the idea from is it from something that's happened or it's from some news articles that I saw and then I sort of began to research a little bit more about that and it just took me off and I thought oh yeah I could do something with that (laughs) oh I'm excited for this without knowing anything about it intriguing um, if you could go and get writing that would be great (laughs) (laughs) yeah hang up and go work (laughs) absolutely (laughs) Give you 15 minutes to finish here. (laughs) (laughs) Don't hang up just yet. We want to have a few more things to ask you and then you can go and quickly finish it for us. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Another question that we ask every author is which typical crime genre trope do you hate slash are sick of if you want to soften the language slightly? (laughs) Um, Is there something particular that you read and sort of roll your eyes at or don't even pick up when you see it? I'm not a big fan of these procedurals with a embittered detective who is alcoholic slash you know drug addicted Mm -hmm. slash something or other you know personal life going to absolute pot and yet somehow is the the best Oh, the best detective on the team. Um, I'm not quite sure how that works for people who are, you know, coping with so much in their personal life. They tend not to really actually hold down their professions very well. And it kind of annoys (laughs) me. And I also think it's just been done to death. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think I'm really a big fan of these procedurals anyway. It's just not my my kind of thing and then the other thing that annoys me um and I think it annoys every reader is when you read something and then kind of 
out of the blue, there's a twist at the end, which makes no sense and doesn't fit the character arcs. And it's clear that the writer's done it because they just want to say, ha ha, I got you. You didn't guess this ending. Um, and then I'm like, yeah, I've invested all that time. It feels like you've just cheated me. I want to hurl the book across. Yeah, yeah definitely for sure. I think we can all think of a few of those. I'm always amazed as well. So particularly for some of you, you work full time while writing. Is that I did until um, kind of middle of 2021 and now I'm full time writing. Oh, amazing. But even still, you've got a lot going on. You've got your family life. You've got your sport. You've got all these different areas. How do you juggle everything to sit down and be productive at the same time? Yeah, I mean, it was much harder when I had the city job. Definitely. Mm. And that was I was fortunate that, that was three days a week. And, and I used to say, OK, the good thing is you go away from the writing and then you're thinking, you know, you're on the commute, you might be thinking about what you want to write next. So you never kind of sit down dry. And that is true. But I definitely write quicker, faster, I think maybe better now that that's, that's all I do. The juggling aspect is slightly easier now the boys are a bit bigger. You know, those expansive time that they're they're off at school are much longer. <laughs> <laughs> Their heads are more sturdy, less soft in places, stuff like that. Yeah. It's helpful, right? <laughs> and, you know, they can dress themselves, you know, they can feed themselves. So. Yeah, bonus. <laughs> it's, it's all fine. Um, so it is, it is a bit easier, but um, I, yeah, I've always been quite a disciplined person. I, I did find it really difficult when I had a deadline and I was working alongside it and I would get kind of stressed in that last sort of six weeks. And it was always, <laughs> am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? And I, I remember saying once to my agent, they'd, I think the publisher said they wanted a, a first draft on a particular day. And I, I said to her, well, how terrible can it be? And, <laughs> and she said, <laughs> okay, okay. Um, oh, probably, probably best you don't turn in anything terrible. And then she went off to the publisher and came back and said, no, no, they say it can be pretty terrible. <laughs> brilliant all right then reassuring <laughs> okay i mean you you can get a terrible first draft um, but that isn't really the way i work though either like i say i like to have a clean first draft so yeah uh it's, it's much easier now that's for sure and and you just try and be quite um disciplined with yourself to make sure that you you do sit down because and now i'm i'm aware that it given that i can you know, work often longer than I did before, you know, the boys might be busy, whatever. I I try and do other things that need to be done, the, you know, life admin, sport, whatever. Mm. I try and do it first because otherwise I'm, I, I'm aware that sometimes I just sit down and write and then I'm kind of lost down the rabbit hole and I find it difficult to come back. So if I, I would find it annoying maybe to be like, right, I must finish at 5.30 because I've got to sort out the car insurance, you know, let's <laughs> just mm. kind of get that done first and then write. Do you think your, your um, kind of ordered approach to writing comes from your academic background where you probably work in a very structured way? I think it comes from... Actually, my teenage years, I was swimming a lot. Um, I was swimming kind of, what, what was I doing? Nine, two-hour sessions a week. Uh, wow. So a lot. And then doing, yeah. you know, doing my, um, well, I was in Scotland, so it was hires and, and managing that alongside. So I, w- I would be the kid who came home from school at kind of 4.30, had to leave again at 5.30 to go to the pool. And in that time, I'd do, you know, an hour of homework and wolf some tea, you know. Wow. So I... I was very good at using whatever time I had quite efficiently. And and I think that became something that I've continued. Sometimes I think I'm not very good at properly relaxing. Right. If I if I have a day where 
there's not much in I will end up writing when I, I sometimes think, well, maybe I should sit down and read something, you know, as opposed mm. to writing. Maybe I should allow myself to do something else. But uh, especially if I'm kind of quite involved in a writing project, I'll end up back doing that instead. <laughs> do you get to read much? I find it difficult because I pick up the voice. You know, I remember like trying to read because mm. I was thinking, well, I'll read like uh, Jack Reacher because it's, you know, it's mm. not exactly like what I write. But yeah. then I had to rewrite two chapters that had staccato sentences in them. And I was like, mm. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> this is just put me back. Red so, pen. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I do pick up the voice quite quickly I know a lot of other authors say that I had I hadn't realized for a long time that it wasn't just me but a lot of people say that so it it needs to be very very far off of what I write before before I can really sort of read something uh, like I, I managed to read Hilary Mantel at the same time as writing but that's yeah very different yeah very different <laughs> yeah we had um, Robert Crace on the podcast a little while ago and he said that he had the exact same thing that, that you did like when he's reading a fiction book he's too busy looking at it critically and so he only can read non-fiction when he really wants to relax oh wow yeah <laughs> i guess it's you've got you know it's your profession isn't it you always have an eye on it and he was like, how well, what have they done with that sentence structure and you know that kind of thing so yeah. i imagine it's hard to switch off it, i do i do occasionally find myself doing that on a it, if it's a novel that i'm really enjoying mm. and like occasionally you think oh i think they've had to work quite hard to to get that in and to get that structure right and then and, and once you notice it then you're thinking about it what was the last book that you read and loved was it Hilary Mantel was it something else so, so the last one I read um was very recent um was uh, mm. Lee Bardugo Hellbent I think it only came out on the 10th of January and what are we the 19th that we're recording wow so I had it on pre-order because I'd really enjoyed Ninth House and yeah devoured it in a day and a half I guess really enjoyed it I think she she, she has a real talent for developing interesting characters and world building you know you just you you yeah. fall into this immersive world of, of this alternative Yale that she's created and and I just loved it and there, there has to be a third I'm sure there has to be a third so I'll probably be pre-ordering that and reading it in, uh, in one sitting more or less again <laughs> Brilliant. Well, you sold me on that one. That's going on my uh, TBR. Have you <laughs> read anything uh, by Le- Lee Bardugo? No. Um, no. So she did all the kind of Shadow and Bones uh, series, you know, the Christian uh, yeah. stuff. And I listened, uh, it must have been in lockdown, I think. So um, my littlest and I would go for walks with one AirPod each and listen to audiobooks. Mm. And we got into those and really enjoyed them. But the Ninth House and Hellbent are, are an adult series not not Mm. an adult really and yeah she's 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 astounding very very good great excellent okay frankie we are coming to my favorite of your questions and the way frankie asks these every time absolutely kills me so one one day you're gonna do it though because it's always me justice not like we've not tried (laughs) i think anyway okay you go (laughs) okay right well lexi i'm afraid i have some terrible news Um, And I'm sorry to have to be the one to break this to you because Sarah refuses to. But (laughs) unfortunately, uh, you've committed a terrible crime. Oh, dear. Truly terrible crime. What crime do you think you've committed? So if I had to have committed a crime, what would it be? Mm. Mm -hmm. A terrible crime. A terrible crime that leads to you getting the death penalty. (gasps) Spoilers. (laughs) Death penalty. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm sorry. I am a 
terrible Don't person. do the crime, Lexi, if you can't do the time. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I have murdered someone um, out of revenge Ooh. who enacted some some terrible, terrible disaster in my life. Great. I'm hoping you've got someone in mind here. You don't <laughs> no, have to tell us. No, really. Well, you can no. tell us and we'll cut it out, but if you want to. That sounds great. I like that very much. I always enjoy it when people actually do like a sincere actual crime because you've had people with like jokey answers, you know, like bad parking and stuff like that. But you've gone, no, revenge killing. Revenge <laughs> killing. Yeah. Much respect. And, like and that I a lot. I only got caught, I am sure, by the mm. most random of unlucky coincidences. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I'm. You know what? From talking to you, Lexi, I think you could get away with murder if you wanted to. <laughs> it must have just been really bad luck. I I believe it in was you. really terrible luck. Yeah, terrible. Really bad luck. I think it was like an eyelash fell out or something <laughs> while you were doing it, and it was just yeah. Unfortunately, they had a really meticulous CSI there that day. Uh, but yeah, so I'm so sorry. You, rightly or wrongly, you killed this person, and unfortunately, you got caught. Um, yeah. you know, obviously Sarah and I are on your side in all of this, but the court wasn't, and I'm afraid <laughs> you've been sentenced to death. Excellent. So we're clearly in another country as well. Which no, we bought it back just for you just in the UK. Me. It was such a terrible time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. We took a vote as a country, and weirdly, we all agreed. Um, it so. was like Brexit. Yeah, it actually brought the country together. It was very good of you oh, to do that. So in nice. that. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Uh, so, unfortunately, you have been condemned to death, but. Silver lining, good news. We're going to make you the death row meal of your dreams, or we can get anyone else to do it for you. So what would your death row meal be? My death row meal would be sushi, which I Ooh. completely love. Um, and th- there's a very good sushi place near us called Heron Tortoise, which I, I really love. So I'd order pretty much everything on the menu from, from there. Okay. And then my dessert would be my son's lemon drizzle cake. Oh, that's lovely. We'll bring him into the prison. We'll get him baking. That's fine. He he would do it (laughs) with a smile, you know. I'm impressed you have a young son that can bake. (laughs) Lockdown did many things for many people. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe he could bake a file or something into the cake or... I'm just, I don't know. Well, no, he can't because... Because I'm clearly going to be killed. Step, obviously. You're going to be killed, yeah, unfortunately, you, you yeah. You are now dead, I'm afraid. But <laughs> oh, I'm, all, I'm, I'm ceremoniously <laughs> dead, I'm afraid. That was I'm quick. going to beat Boom. around the bush. But you can be buried with the book of your choice. What would you like it to be? I would like my favourite novel ever, which... And I wonder how many people answer this question and come up with something that's from their teenage years that really just... A couple of people have, but I'm curious to hear this. Um, So it's um, a science fiction novel by Sherry S. Tepper. I think it was nominated for or won the Hugo Award at the time. It's called Grass. It is a tour de force. I just absolutely loved it. And again, the characterization is perfect. The world building is amazing. And the... The concepts are like really fresh, but really well thought out. And it's sometimes I find it's more fancy than science fiction because I find science fiction quite cold. Mm. Fancy is, is, is maybe, you know, a bit warmer, but it's, it's fancy that is, is rooted in, you know, the, the premise is rooted in, in science in a sense. So yeah, I, I totally, totally adore that novel. And I read it going on holiday quite recently. I just wanted something on the plane. It was a long plane ride and I just wanted something that I knew would deliver. And I, I grabbed it and read it again and thought, yeah, it still doesn't disappoint. It's great. But your son's read it as well. 
Have you not managed to? No, I haven't managed to. I think I think my little one would be more likely to be interested in it. But um, no, I haven't managed to get them into it. Well, they probably, once you've been killed and are buried with it, they might give it a go. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They might pick it up. Yeah, my mum's <laughs> burial book. <laughs> give that a quick read. <laughs> my mum's coffin book. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. So Lexi, one before we let you go, because we've taken up more than enough of your time tonight, with the new book, which is very exciting, I'll say it's out in February. What is one thing you want everyone to to know going in or not? Do you want people to go in fully cold? Or is there something you'd like people to take away from the experience? Well, I mean, obviously I want them to take away that it's a marvelous book and they must tell it's a masterpiece, of course. Everybody they yep. not want to read it immediately. And, and possibly Correct. tap on the shoulder of strangers in the street and tell them as well would be would be ideal. Yep. So yeah. So that aside, yeah, I think it's it's not something where you need to go in, you know, with with any kind of grounding. You can absolutely go into it cold. And I think I think if you go into it hoping to to read a character driven novel with, you know, authentic relationships and uh, that kind of moves along at pace and uh, then I, I don't think there's any way that you'll be disappointed and you might just find that you've had the experience of being somewhere new and unique that you wouldn't otherwise have had access to and I, I hope people really enjoy that. Very good. I really wanted to um, sleep with Mike. <laughs> reading it to be honest yeah yeah, me too yeah big strong rugby player yes that would be lovely I'll do that that'll be fine brilliant well thank you so much for talking with us it was really interesting like I said we absolutely love the book recommend it to everyone thank you Um, not quite the same as tapping someone on the shoulder on the street but I have been reading it on the tube on my commute oh yay someone saw it did you hold up hold it up for everyone to see on the tube at least a point it was on my ipad so actually Uh. they wouldn't have had a clue but it's a thought that counts (laughs) as you're reading it out loud you're like this book by alexia i was rating it to everyone on the elizabeth line yeah (laughs) oh thank you so much for having me guys this has been so much fun Oh, our pleasure. And hopefully come back when you finish the next mysterious one that you've teased us with. That'd be great. (laughs) Brilliant. And Lexi, where can people find you on social media? I know you don't like doing it, but let's get some people over to follow you. Yes. Um, So Lexi Elliott writes um, for Instagram. And I think that probably does me on um, uh, Twitter as well, I think. (laughs) <laughs> it might be Elliot <laughs> underscore Lexi at Twitter, but you can definitely find me at um, www.lexielliot.com. So that's the place to go where you can pre-order books and um, find out what I'm up and subscribe for my newsletter as well. Brilliant. Excellent. Um, I love that you couldn't remember your Twitter handle because that is me every time we record with our podcast one and it drives Frankie mental. <laughs> because she doesn't know the name of our podcast. Oh, really? She was going dead and buried. I was like, red and berry like she doesn't even know the name i know <laughs> it's just kind of symbolic of a lot of wider issues we have going on lexi but it's fine it's all very it's functional healthy have you tried writing so you know as therapy sarah <laughs> oh yeah I, I don't think so i had a brief flirtation with one creative writing module at uni and that was enough <laughs> I'm a reader, not a writer. She barely messages me back. I don't know if she's going to write much more than that, to be honest, but there we go. (laughs) (laughs) 
anyway, Frankie, where can people find us on social media? <laughs> they can find us, Sarah, at Red and Buried Podcast on pretty much all the social channels if they type that in Red and Buried. Or if you want to send a longer form message to us, you can email us at redandburiedpodcast at gmail.com. So well thank you. Thank you. I need to learn to do it like that. I'm going I'm to write it down another time so that I have oh. it. <laughs> it's not my first time saying it, but uh, <laughs> one of us has to get it right. So, you know, all good. So Lexi, thank you so much and really excited to see the next book and everyone go and buy it. And thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, bye. Thanks. Bye. Hi, folks. This is Tony Black, co-host and producer of Between the Notes, a podcast all about the music of film and television. Myself and co-host Sean Wilson delve into a range of topics including brand new film score releases. So four, four notes can, can communicate the primal vengeance and rage of Robert Pattinson's, uh, Pattinson's I should say, uh, interpretation of, um, <laughs> yeah, I've heard of, that a couple of, of times. Batman, yeah. Focuses on specific composers such as Ennio Morricone. Just to put this in context, Gwyneth Paltrow got an Oscar before Ennio Morricone did. I mean, how does that... <laughs> How how does that work? And special episodes focusing on topics like adventure movie scores. I think that principle is consistent all the way through Conan because it has to be, because it, it is an opera in which the music is the dialogue. We're available on all podcast platforms and on social media at Between Notes Pod on Twitter and Facebook. So please subscribe, get in touch, and join us to discuss the sounds of cinema and television. Between the Notes.